invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Acts 23. Acts 23. We'll begin reading in a few minutes. And I guess technically we're going to begin in 22 verse 30, so I should say Acts 22 30. So as you turn there, I'm going to ask the Lord's leading as we seek to understand this passage. God, we do come before you this morning wanting to hear from you. And as we hear from you through your word, as we consider the events of Acts 23, Lord, we realize there are many potential messages, many things that could be said to us through this text. And yet, as we stand at a time in our personal history where there has probably never been so much uncertainty, so much that is coming at us new from multiple directions, we can relate to the Apostle Paul and the twists and turns that his life takes in this text. And so, Lord, we ask that we would glean from this, that we would hear through this the message of comfort that you gave to Paul and that you give to us this morning. And we pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. So, it's probably right around 1980-ish, give or take a year in there, and our church youth group was headed to Six Flags Great America in Gurney, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Six Flags Great America, large amusement park there, and one of the things that happened when you grew up, when you grew up in northern Illinois is that you went there probably about three times a year. You went, at least if you were to go to church, you went once with your church youth group, you usually went once with your sports team at the end of the season, and then you throw in a Cub Scout something or a family outing, and I ended up going there about three times a year. Well, this particular uh, visit, this particular summer, they had a, a ride that was relatively new, and it was called the Tidal Wave. The Tidal Wave doesn't exist anymore, it's been, you know, replaced with bigger, faster, better rides. But this tidal wave was one of those dragster style, the sudden acceleration roller coasters. So you start here, and it accelerates you super fast. And it sends you through a 360-degree loop. And then up a tower. So that all you saw was the sky, and you felt like you were going to fly off the end of it. And then for a brief moment, you stop, and then gravity takes you back, and now you go backwards through the loop. Back through the house, zoop, up another tower, zoop, and then you came down, poof, and they bring you to a stop. And that's the ride. Now, it doesn't sound like much by today's standards, but back then it was kind of a big deal. It was the new rage, and our youth group went, and my good friend from the youth group convinced me that we should get in line for this ride. Now, I'm not a big fan of those sorts of things. I am not a guy who is a, an adrenaline junkie. I am not a thrill seeker for the sake of th seeking thrills. I'm one of the few men in my family who has never jumped out of an airplane, and I intend to keep it that way. I do not seek out these things for their own sake. But... Gina, my good friend, convinced me that we should get in line. And so we're standing in line, we're waiting for it, we're watching the ride. It's a long line because it was the new hit ride. And we're standing there waiting for it. And we watch one of the things, we, can, we see it accelerate out of the house. And something didn't go quite as planned. It went zoop, and it went bloop, and it went zoop, and it stopped upside down in the loop. 
Purses begin to fall. Glasses begin to drop. Things are falling out. People, thankfully, no people are falling out. The harnesses worked and held. Eventually, there was just enough gravity to get it to come back down into the house. Well, needless to say, they shut the ride down for a while. It didn't matter that they shut it down or not. I was not getting on that ride at that point. I was done. I was out of the line. That is more drama than I could handle. It was, it was barely possible, conceivable for me to even get on the ride when it was functioning perfectly. There was no chance I was getting on the ride when that had happened. That drama, that roller coaster experience, roller coasters are a common metaphor for our lives. Our lives are roller coaster type experiences. And to be sure, that's what's happening here at the end of the book of Acts. As we consider what's happening in Paul's life, we could certainly use a roller coaster metaphor. Now, it's a bit of a historical anachronism. There were no roller coasters back then. But let's take our modern metaphor and apply it to his ancient life. Let me remind you, before we even jump into the, to the drama and the roller coaster of Acts 23, let me remind you of what's happened to get to this point. So back in Acts 21, two full chapters ago, we'll remember that they were on the way to Jerusalem, and there was this drama about whether or not they should even go to Jerusalem. You'll recall that all of those who were traveling with Paul his uh, friend Luke, his friend Timothy, these people traveling with him. Uh, 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 we find out later that uh, Trophimus was with them. All of them are saying, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen to you in Jerusalem. And there is drama over whether or not he should even go. And then he arrives at the house of Philip, the evangelist, and Philip says, don't go. And Philip's four daughters are prophetesses. They are mouthpieces of God to the early church who didn't yet have the complete word of God. And they say to Paul, don't go. These things are going to happen. You're going to be arrested. You might even be attacked physically. And then finally, Agabus, who was himself a prophet, takes Paul's belt and binds himself hand and feet and says, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this belt. And they all say, don't go. And Paul says, okay, I should listen to all this advice. No, he says, I'm going. You don't understand. The Spirit has told, I know, none of, everything you say is true. I know that already. The Spirit has affirmed that and confirmed that for me. I know what you say is true, but I'm going anyway. So the very journey to Jerusalem was a drama-filled journey. And then you'll recall when he gets into Jerusalem, he meets with James and the elders, and they say, listen, there's a big controversy surrounding you. There's a whole lot of drama surrounding you, Paul. They're claiming that you are anti-law, that you're anti-Moses, that you're anti-temple, uh, that you're in the end, final analysis, you're anti-Jew. And we need you to go be publicly Jewish. So he agrees to go to the temple and perform these acts, but it requires a seven-day purification period because he's been out in the Gentile lands, and all of his opponents know they can count off seven days. They've got good calendars. And as the seventh day comes to an end and he goes to the temple, they greet him there and meet him there, and a riot breaks out. 
All kinds of accusations are flying. This man brings Gentiles into the temple. We've seen him in town with Trophimus. That man's a Gentile. Now, of course, he hadn't actually brought Trophimus into the temple. He'd just gone to the marketplace, done some shopping, hung out with Trophimus, had some coffee. Didn't matter. So now they're lying about him, and there is drama on the doorstep of the temple. So much so, it gets so out of hand that the Roman uh, uh, military leader called Tribune, the Roman Tribune, has to step in. And to add to the drama, what does he remember what he does? He doesn't step in and protect Paul. He steps in and arrests Paul. He just assumes that if there's all this drama, Paul must be the cause of it. And then after his arrest, Paul seeks an audience. He says to the tribune, can I speak to the people? And the tribune says, sure, go ahead. And he starts to speak to the people and starts to tell them, listen, I understand why you hate this thing we call the way what you and I would today call Christianity. I get it. I'm one of you. I was raised in this city like you were. I was a Pharisee. We always tend to think of those in modern-day terms as the bad guys, but they were the biblical conservatives back then. They were the ones who took a very literal, very um, uh, conservative approach to their interpretation of Scripture. And so Paul says, "I, I was a biblical conservative. I was a Pharisee. I was trained under Gamaliel. Oh, wow. He says, and then I had a vision. God met with me. Wow. Okay. And he sent me to the Gentiles. And at that place, no, we can't take any more of this. They stick their fingers in the ear. La, 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 la. We are not going to listen anymore. There is no way our God would send anybody to the Gentiles. You are lying. And they attack him again. And the tribune is so worried about it that he sends soldiers in to intervene and to rescue Paul, lest Paul be torn apart, torn into pieces, the text says. And the tribune, not knowing what else to do, decides that the the way that we're going to get to the truth is we're going to beat it out of Paul. And he orders Paul to be flogged. And as Paul is being stretched out, As his hands are tied and his arms are pulled out, spread eagle, and his legs are pulled back, and his back is being bared to the whip. Again, the drama. Why wait till that moment, Paul? As Paul's there, he looks up and says, Civis Romanus, I am a Roman citizen. And the guy that's tying him up goes, oops. And runs back to the tribune and says, this guy's a Roman citizen. We can't beat him without a trial. And the tribune goes, oh my goodness. And he goes to Paul, is this true? And Paul says, well, yes. He says, why did you tell me? Why did you wait till the last possible moment? And there has been drama upon drama upon drama in these last few weeks of Paul's life. And now we get to Acts 23. Follow along as I read Acts 23. I'm actually going to begin in 22:30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So he's called an emergency meeting of the council. This is the Jewish council, other places in scripture known as the Sanhedrin. 
There were different types of Sanhedrins. There were local councils in the local villages and towns. But this is the, the Sanhedrin, the supreme Sanhedrin. This would be the equivalent of our supreme court. It's the highest body in Judaism. And he calls, the, the tribune calls an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That is an amazing statement. That is a dramatic statement. For consider now how many of us could actually say that. Who among us could actually say, I have lived with a clean conscience, a clear conscience? It is a profound statement. And if somebody said that to us today, we would, hmm, yeah, okay, whatever. You're not coming clean about the things that stain your conscience. But even more so in that Jewish gathering. For we actually can have a clean conscience. For we are aware that there is a sacrifice once for all to take care of all, not just once for all people, but once for all of my sin. One sacrifice has been made by which my conscience can be clear, but not so for a Jew. Their conscience was cleared for the moment in which the animal sacrifice occurred. But immediately, as soon as they walked away and had a covetous thought, as soon as they walked away and lusted after some woman walking past, their conscience was stained again. Because there was no sacrifice in their system that could take care of all sin. What an outrageous thing for Paul to say. So outrageous, in fact. Look at the next verse. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. This is not a slap. This is a punch. Or perhaps the word could actually include an object like a, a club or a stick. So this is either a closed fist punch to the mouth or this is a stick. This is drama. Here it is, the Supreme Court of all Judaism, and there's a fist fight breaking out. I'm reminded of the account in 1858 of the U.S. House of Representatives when there was debate over whether or not Kansas should enter, as a, enter the Union as a free state or a slave state. And Representative Grove from Pennsylvania and the representative whose name just slipped out of my head from South Carolina, they began to, the, the, the debate had gone in late into the night. In fact, it's 2 a.m. the next morning. It's been a long day on the floor of the House of Representatives. And these two get so angry with each other, they actually come to blows. They begin a fist fight on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. And in fact, the, the uh, congressional record shows that about 30 other representatives joined in. There's a melee on the US floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. That's quite the statesmanship right there. In fact, the sergeant-at-arms had to be sent in and he couldn't break it up. You want to know how it actually ended? This is kind of funny. A couple of representatives out of Wisconsin were wrestling with a representative from... Didn't even just say that. <laughs> Members of Congress are wrestling. Um, they're wrestling with a representative from Mississippi. And in the, in the uh, a carnage that's going on, one of them grabbed for the guy and pulled his toupee off. And everybody burst out laughing. And it was that laughter that finally brought the fight to an end. 
That is just not a pretty picture of your high, you know, what you want your government officials to be doing, your high officials. That's the scene here. A fight has broken out. He punches Paul in the mouth. Actually, orders somebody else to do it. Then look at Paul's response, verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you. You punch me, God's going to punch you, you whitewashed wall. This idea of something that looks good but has no structural integrity. You lean against it, it's going to fall down. It looks fine, it ain't real. Okay? Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And Paul's right. The irony of this is that Paul's on trial for breaking Jewish law, and the high priest breaks Jewish law. You weren't supposed to punch somebody before they actually have been convicted. You had to punish them first. The high priest has jumped the gun. He's rushed to judgment. Now at this moment, Paul probably should have seized the legal high ground. He should have turned to the rest of the court and said, look, look at that. I mean, you can't trust this guy as high priest. He breaks the law while he's accusing me of breaking the law. But that's not what Paul did. Paul calls, calls the high priest names. He, he he yells at the high priest. And then those who are, uh, 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 verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. There's a lot of debate about exactly what happened here. Uh, because of the the, the, the hurried nature at which this council was called? Did the high priest not put on all of his regalia? Was he not wearing his pointy hat? You know? Or is it just that Paul's eyesight is that bad? Or was Paul just not paying attention? Or is he flat out making excuses? We don't know. But apparently Paul, whatever the, the reason, whatever exactly happened, Paul feels badly about it. He immediately regrets it. He says, you're right. You're right. I just broke the law. And he cites the passage out of Exodus for himself. So now he accused, so he's lost any chance to seize the legal high ground because he has also just broken the law in court. We have on our, uh, in front of us just a legal mess. And we continue to read in verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sanhedrins, I'm sorry, bleh, one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council. Now, before I tell you what he cried out, let me stop and comment on this. We have two major parties. In ancient Judaism, there were really kind of three groups, more or less. There were the, the Sadducees that we see here, and they did not believe in anything supernatural. They did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in the resurrection. So they were sad, you see. That was funnier in my notes, so. There were the Pharisees. They were pretty biblically conservative. They believed in all of those things. And then there were the Essenes. And they were kind of the way out there conservatives, the, the, almost like a, a monastic group. And so they wouldn't have been participating in this because they were probably out in the desert somewhere in caves just reading their books and strumming their guitars. Um, so they weren't in here participating. So Paul recognizing what's going on, and there's some debate whether or not he did this as a political maneuver to cause disruption, but whatever, he certainly tries to win over half of the council, and we see what he then says. 
He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. You understand why I'm here? I'm here because I've said that Jesus is alive. I've said that I've met with him. I've said that God raised him from the dead. That's why these people are upset with me. That's the only reason. And when he, had sa- when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? We have no problem with his story. We believe in the supernatural. It doesn't surprise us that he may have met uh, 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 some kind of supernatural being on the road to Damascus. That doesn't, isn't that outrageous after all, upon further consideration? By the way, we must be careful that we don't dismiss the supernatural inappropriately. I'm not saying that we should attribute to everything that happens, anything that seems the slightest bit inexplicable. We should say, oh, it was a spirit. Oh, it was a demon. Oh, it was this, that. But neither should we scoff at the idea that there are demons and spirits. For we believe in a spirit world. And we know that there are those powers. And to be consistent with their beliefs, the Pharisees suddenly, at least some of them, take Paul's side. We keep reading in verse 10. And when the uh, dissension became violent, here we are again. More drama, more upheaval, more chaos. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. That's how bad things are commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. And by the way, almost always in the New Testament, when we see the Lord, that's usually a reference to Jesus. Usually a reference to Jesus. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's not forget that. Jesus has just told him that he's going to testify in Rome. And at this point, you and I, and probably Paul, would say, okay, let's get it done. Let's get it going. Let's get on the luxury yacht headed to Rome. Let's go. Let's get me there. God, you can do this. You can pull this off. You can get me there in style. You can get me on the fastest ship, the safest ship, the fastest passage, the most luxurious passage. Let's get me to Rome. If this is what I got to do, let's get going. All right, I'm ready to roll. A promise from God. A promise from God will be fulfilled. But the path to get there may still shock. It may still surprise When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Wouldn't it be hilarious? Wouldn't it be awesome if archaeologists suddenly announced, we have found this mass grave of 43 people who starved to death. We're not sure why, but they starved to death. 
because they never could kill Paul, and they were bound by this vow. Be an interesting archaeological discovery. Uh, 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 they went to the chief priest and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Here's the deal, dear council, dear high priests. If you will commit to breaking the ninth commandment, we will commit to breaking the sixth. That's spiritual leadership right there. Now the son of Paul's sister, this is the only time we ever hear about Paul's family. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Uh, one of the things it's easy to lose sight of. Uh, at prisons today, you, you know, you, it's very rigid and very regulated how you visit a prisoner. But back then, the coming and going of your friends was far more commonplace. And in fact, most of the prisons back then, if you didn't get visited by friends, you weren't going to eat. You weren't going to have clothes. You weren't going to have a blanket. Um, the, the, the prison system didn't provide for your well-being. Your friends and family did. And so there was a, a routine coming and going of friends and, uh, and family into the prison. So his nephew comes, and uh, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and uh, uh, brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, so he's probably a young boy, and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. As if the drama in Paul's life was not enough, there is now a murderous plot to kill him. If you were to write this as a Hollywood script, it would get thrown out as too outrageous, too unbelievable, too melodramatic. Too much. No, there's no way all this could happen to the life of one person. Come on. Get real. But what's more amazing than a murderous plot? Well, how about a, a midnight escape? Let's keep reading. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea. That's probably about two-thirds of the armed Roman contingent in the city of Jerusalem. About two-thirds. Maybe only half, but probably closer to two-thirds. That's a big chunk of the armed contingent. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius uh, Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them, upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. That's funny wording. He arrested him, but oh well. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. 
I found that he was being accused about the question of their, questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when he was disclosed to, and sorry, when it was disclosed to me that he would, that, ah, I'm struggling here, I'm sorry. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province um, he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. What an amazing account of a roller coaster ride. Up and down, life threatened, rescued. Life threatened, rescued. Life threatened, rescued. The rescue not always as grand and as glorious as, we, as he might have liked or we might like. Up and down, back and forth. A promise to be delivered to Rome, a promise from God himself, and yet constant drama, constant threats, constant uncertainty. And one of the things that we must recognize is this, that this is a picture of how providence works. This is a picture of how providence works. That God accomplishes his purposes in and through secondary causes. Human decisions. Human beings making choices. Human will at play. That God accomplishes his purposes through secondary causes. This is what theologians call concurrence. There is a concurrence of a human decision and God's decision. The two are happening simultaneously and bringing about God's purposes. So was the threat to Paul real? Absolutely. There was a real threat from the initial mob, and then from the Sanhedrin, and then from the would-be assassins. These are real threats. They present a real danger to Paul. But was the assurance of God real as well? Absolutely. God is going to accomplish his purposes in Paul's life. He is going to bring it about. He is going to assure the outcome. You can be absolutely certain that he's going to get to Rome. So why the drama? Why is this happening? Well, I ask you this. Does our God love art? Does our God love art? Does God love visual beauty? Does he like the interplay of shade and shape and shading and palette and perspective? having seen a few sunrises, I'm going to say, yeah, he does. Yes, our God loves visual beauty. He likes art, and he created these things. Does our God appreciate auditory excellence? Well, who is it that commands us to, to praise him in song? 
Does he like things that sound good? Does he like music? Does he like the oboe? He likes the bassoon more. Any guesses what instrument I played in school? Does our God like auditory excellence? Yes, he does. He wants us to sing and to play and to praise him through these things. Does our God delight in dietary delicacies? Well, he's the one who made the cocoa plant. And he's the one that made the chili plant. And he's the one that stunned us. When you put the two together, they're actually pretty good. Who would have thought that spicy chocolate could be yummy? But it is. We have a God who loves art. He loves drama. Our God is a God of drama. And it doesn't take much to prove that. In our Old Testament reading, we saw, we, we read of Moses and the people singing the song of praise to God after their rescue at the Red Sea. But have you ever asked yourself, why the Red Sea at all? Is our God not capable of providing a smooth, paved highway into Jerusalem? For that matter, why did they have to leave Egypt? You ever thought about that? Couldn't God have struck the Egyptians dead and left that beautiful, uh, plentiful, nourished land for his people? Well, yes, he could have. Why did David have to face Goliath? Why a boy against a giant with nothing but a slingshot? Why on earth was Sarah barren? God had promised Abraham to be the father of many nations. Why give him a wife who can't conceive? Why on earth did Gideon have to pare his army down to 300? And why did the Assyrians get right up to Israel, uh, Jerusalem's doorstep in the time of Hezekiah? You, 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 we have this account, even from the scripture account, the Assyrians demolished, I think it's 56 cities in Judah. God couldn't have stopped them before that moment. They have to be right on Jerusalem's doorstep. And then the angel of the Lord goes into the camp and stops the Assyrian attack. Why? Why on earth would we, you know, Daniel and the lion, why does he have to be thrown in the lion's den? Why can't God intervene before that happens? Our God loves drama. At the sunrise. Wow. At the excellence of a musician. Wow. At the mastery of a chef. Wow. And at the drama of life. Wow. Wow is a word of praise. Wow is an expression of praise. It is amazement at what has been done. It is delight in the one who's done it. The ride is the experience. Back to that amusement park in my childhood youth group. Later, a couple of hours later, they announced over the park's PA system that the tidal wave was back up and running. And of course, nobody really wanted to get on it at that point. So the line wasn't nearly as long, so my friend Gina begged, and she, nobody else in the youth group would go with her. So she begged me, and I finally 
agreed. And Gina and I got in line and we got on that roller coaster. An interesting thing happened. They locked the little bar down across our lap, or I can't remember, I think it's a lap bar, maybe it was a shoulder, I can't remember what it was, the harness, they, they lock it down. Immediately, Gina's hands, boom. You know how people are on roller coasters? They gotta go through like this. Went to Disney World a few years back, the only time I did this was on the golf cart ride out to the parking lot. It's over, yay. Gina's sitting there like this, I'm gripping the bar, white knuckle, terrified. And the thing takes off, up the thing, up the tower, ah, back through, boom, back up the tower, into the station. Now, I did not cry, but that's about as manly as I can claim to be. Gina's screaming her head off the whole time, hair flying, having a blast. We're both on the ride. We both are on the ride. We both believed that it was safe. That the promise of getting back safely was to be trusted. But, which one of us would sell the ride to somebody else? Well, it's Gina. Hands in the air, hair flying everywhere, not a care in the world, having a great old time. She's the one that's the advertisement for the ride. Now, I believed, I believed the ride was safe and trustworthy, but the manner of my faith really didn't extol the creator of the ride. It didn't really praise. I didn't really get off the ride and go, wow, I got off the ride and went, ugh. But even with that response, what happened Monday morning in school? What did you do over the weekend? Ah, oh, my youth group, church youth group went to, oh, did you ride the title? Oh, yeah, I rode the title. What happened? Oh, you won't believe it. Even in the way that I responded with anxiety, nevertheless, I did declare the glory of the ride and of the park. Now, our New Testament reading told us not to be anxious, not to fret, not to worry. How hard that is. How hard it is not to be anxious, especially with all that's going on right now. It seems like we have every justification for anxiety. Like we have every reason for fretting. But the call of the scriptures is to recognize the God who built the ride. Who's in control. Who's at the helm. It's a call to throw our hands up and go along having a good time. This is why the scriptures say things like rejoice, even in times of trial. This is why the scriptures talk about, about praising and being thankful, even in times of difficulty. Because we believe the ride is worth it, and it's safe, and it's going to take us to a wonderful destination. And if that's going to happen, and if we're assured of the one who has built it and in control of it, then what good is our hanging on going to do? My white knuckles of anxiety, if that ride had stopped halfway upside down, would my hanging on have kept me in there? I don't have those kind of arm, length, arm strength. If I were going to fall out, I was going to fall out. Me hanging on wouldn't make one bit of difference. Except that it made it look like I didn't really trust the ride. 
Paul's life is a roller coaster of a life. And it ain't over, folks. There are shipwrecks to come and more trials and meetings with kings and meetings with Caesars. The roller coaster ain't over. But he's been promised about the outcome. Now, hot about the path, the twists and turns along the way. You ever, we were down at, I told you we were down at Disney. One of the rides we rode, there was a portion of it was in the dark. We were inside this like building, couldn't see anything. So every time the roller coaster turned, ah, you didn't know which way it was going. And that's how it feels sometimes. But the call is to say, hey, I trust the one who's in control. I might as well just throw my hands up and have a good time. There's no need for anxiety. There's no need for worry because it ain't going to get me anything anyway. God has promised the destination. And we can be sure of it. Let's pray. Lord, we struggle to live this life with that kind of joy, with that kind of pleasure, with that kind of relaxed attitude and trust in the certainty of the outcome. Help us to do so. Help us, Lord, not to be anxious, not to fret, not to believe that we can add one minute to our life through anything that we would do, but rather recognize that you are the one who built this life full of drama. And let us say, wow, wow, God, what a path you took us on. Wow, you saved us in an amazing way. Wow, you did that that way. We never saw that coming. Help us to be a people of wow. Word of praise for God who builds drama into our lives. Lord, everything about what you do ought to wow us. Help us to see it that way. Not to be anxious, not to fret, but to be joyous riders who draw others to the ride. We pray this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.